It's Thursday, June 30th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'm just one of many fellows, by the way, who are doing podcasts. If you don't believe me, go to the Hoover Institution's website, which is hoover.org. Click on the tab that says Publications. Go to the bottom left where it says Podcasts, and there you'll see just about everything we do, about a dozen podcasts and all. You can subscribe to them on iTunes while you're there. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our pod blast to you each month. Hoover Institution podcast is one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guests today are David Brady and Douglas Rivers. Dave Brady is a senior fellow emeritus here at the Hoover Institution and a longtime political scientist and lecturer at both Stanford University and Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Doug Rivers, likewise, is a Hoover Institution senior fellow and a Stanford University political scientist. He's also a pollster extraordinaire, chief scientist at UGub PLC, a global polling firm. When you see a UGub poll in the partnership with The Economist or CBS <laughs> News, that is Doug Rivers' handiwork. They're here today to talk about the election landscape almost a week after the Dobbs decision, which struck down Roe v. Wade, plus other court decisions, the January 6th hearings, the economy, Joe Biden's struggles, Republicans' possible gains this fall. Who knows what's going to happen there? All the moving parts of this complicated election year. Guys, good to see you. Nice to be with you. Thank so you. <clears throat> begin by reading to you a quote said by Maya Sen. She is a Harvard political scientist and, and professor of public policy. Here's what she said today in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, which struck down Roe v. Wade. Quote, in her words, Roe is actually a pretty popular Supreme Court opinion. Around 60% of Americans and majority of independents believe that it should not be overturned. That said, even though Roe is a popular ruling, Americans actually disagree about the nuances of abortion itself. If you ask Americans whether a ban after 15 weeks of pregnancy is unconstitutional, as was the case in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. A large majority of Democrats would say it, it would be unconstitutional, but a smaller majority of Republicans would disagree. And she adds, quote, I'd like to say a lot of Americans land right around where Chief Justice Roberts did in the ruling in thinking that the Mississippi law at the heart of Dobbs is constitutional, but that even so, even so, Roe v. Wade should not be flatly overturned. Doug, I think you said you have something like four polls in the field looking at this topic. Yeah. Uh, is this in line what she said with what you're finding in your YouGov findings? Yes, she got it exactly right. Um, so uh, we've been running different polls asking people about their reaction to the Dobbs decision. And uh, we've gotten between about 50 and 60% um, disapproving of it, uh, typically around 30% um, percent, uh, or a little more approve of it. Um, so uh, majority um, disapproves of the uh, decision. On the other hand, if you ask people, uh, do they think abortion should be permitted in the first 15 weeks of pregnancy? The support's about 54%. Once you go above that, it starts to drop. Um, so um, the, the middle of the distribution is um, favor abortion with some restrictions. Uh, if the restrictions were to 15 weeks, which is uh, about what it is in Europe, actually maybe a little looser than it is uh, in Europe, um, that's probably the uh, majority position in the public. Um, if you go down to the restrictions we're going to have in some states where abortion under no circumstances, that gets you into the single digits of support when you don't include exceptions for rape, incest, or the life of the mother. Okay. So Dave Brady, are we talking game changer or not vis-a-vis -vis this election? 
Well, I, I, I can't, and I talked with Doug about it this morning. I looked at, uh, I looked, I looked at track surveys from YouGov, The Economist, uh, from May 12th, uh, starting uh, first time we asked questions after the Roe decision had been revealed, and uh, then at the most recent YouGov. And, and the results are, I'm, I'm not finding uh, huge increase, uh, big changes. People, people are pretty, uh, their opinions were set at the beginning and the end. I'll give you some examples. On, on May 7th, uh, you could always have an abortion. That number went up two points, mm -hmm. but so, uh, some restrictions on it, it was 27. In short, there was no change on the basic four part question that we ask about abortion. Abortion always under some restrictions, under the special restrictions that Doug mentioned where uh, mother's life, et cetera, baby, and uh, never, uh, those have, they just haven't changed very much. Then, then there was a question on uh, in May about, uh, would you vote for a candidate? Could you vote for a candidate that uh, was opposed to abortion, even in the case of rape or incest. And uh, that number moved, but it moved in the opposite direction, not much. It moved from 55 saying no to a little uh, right around 50 saying no. So I, I'm, not getting, I'm not getting much on that. We also investigated or looked at guns and uh, the January 6th, uh, I don't see much uh, guns. I'm not seeing much change on that. There are a number of uh, Republicans that seem to be uh, holding Trump more responsible for January 6th events than before. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't, thus far, I'm not seeing it. When you try and look at that stuff and say, do people who hold these views in any one of them or in any combination, are they more likely to vote? I, I didn't find much of that. And Doug was looking at that too. I don't, I don't think he found any either. Mm -hmm. um, well, we certainly haven't seen the uh, huge move. There are um, several recent polls, including ours, have shown about a, a three-point bump up in the um, uh, generic congressional ballot. That is the fraction of people intending to vote Democratic um, in November. Um, it, it's not particularly concentrated among the people who are pro-life and pro-choice um, because they tend to already be pretty committed Democrats or Republicans. But I do think this is a big deal. Um, one thing I looked at is uh, the right track, wrong direction numbers. Um, so that's kind of an underlying measure of how uh, people view the situation. Right. And not surprisingly, uh, the pro-life voters uh, very much thought we were off on um, the wrong track. Uh, they're Republicans, and that's a reflection largely on incumbent administration, which is Democratic. Um, they haven't moved uh, pre or post this decision, uh, but there's been a massive move of uh, pro-choice voters. Um, they're mostly Democrats. They've been more positive and optimistic. And uh, when the uh, Dobbs decision leaked uh, a couple months ago, uh, there was an immediate uh, sort of 10-point drop in their belief that we were... Um, uh, on the right, uh, headed in the right direction. And then when the decision released uh, last week, uh, there was an additional 10 point drop. So they went from being in the mid thirties in terms of headed in the right direction down to about the same level in the teens uh, with the pro-life voters. Um, so um, the result here is that 
um, Democrats have uh, come to the realization that the Supreme Court uh, is going to be a big constraint on Democrats holding uh, the executive and legislative branches. Um, and um, so it's it's turned them much more negative. It's unclear at this point whether that will uh, mobilize Democrats and counteract the negative uh, economic trends that are hurting uh, Democratic chances for holding Congress. But um, it's undoubtedly uh, for Democrats is a um, big positive in the sense of it's taking uh, the discussion off of the economy and on to something else, off of an issue that uh, is quite good for Republicans onto one that actually isn't very good for Republicans. I'm going to probably go over my skis here, Doug, because you're going to be polling on this this weekend, I suspect. But the president uh, earlier today said that he is uh, amenable to the idea of blowing up the filibuster in the Senate so as to codify abortion into law. Uh, this seems to me to cut both ways, Doug. On the one hand, that would further bolster Democrats. On the other hand, that would enrage Republicans at the same time. So just I hate to make you get you know, well, you don't think it's going to happen? No. No. You don't think it would get through the Senate? I don't think that... Uh... Cinema and uh, uh, Mansion will vote for it. I, I don't. I don't see how this would convince them. That that is their argument's always been. As if you uh, tried to do that, then what'll happen? It'll uh, when they get in, they'll flip it and go the other way. I, I don't. I just don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do think for the Democratic base, the view that I prefer the keeping the filibuster to doing something about uh, Roe being overturned right. uh, is a loser. Um, I think I agree with Dave that it's unlikely to actually uh, get rid of the filibuster. Uh, but Biden, uh, I don't think he had any choice but uh, to say that you know, he'd prefer to, he think it's more important to do something about abortion than it is to keep the filibuster. Yeah. Oh, I, I think the left, I, I mean, I do, I agree with, I, I agree with the point that is he was under pressure from the left. They're saying he's not doing enough. And and so I guess for me, I'll be interested in the polling, but but my view is the proposals that have come forward, i.e., let's put uh, let's put abortion centers in uh, in federal uh, parks or create federal parks stuff like. I just don't think that's a winner politically. I think the Democrats look if if this if this is just a question of Roe, fifteen weeks or. Uh, 18 weeks, whatever. If just it's just a question of row, that's a winning issue for Democrats. Right. Majority support that. But if they push to the other, if they push the other extreme, then I don't think the proposals I've heard thus far are, I don't think those are winning issues for them. So I was looking at a Monmouth College poll from earlier this week, and it showed the following. Only According to their findings, only three in 10 Americans say individual states being able to ban and restrict abortion would personally impact them or their family. 13% said it would impact them a great deal. 17% said it would impact them somewhat. On the other hand, half 50% feel they will not be impacted at all. Another 18% do not expect much impact. So as opposed to the economy, which you do feel on almost a daily basis, I went to the grocery store earlier this morning buying rather spartan goods i spent about a hundred bucks you feel that abortion is not necessarily something you experience on a daily basis uh, so it raises this question for you two political scientists we're looking on the one hand with the economy as almost an evergreen issue it's going to be with us through november on the other hand we have a very potent symbolic issue here so what does political science suggest about symbolism and how long symbolism can stay in an election because we are right now 130 days out 
Well, I yes, mean, just start with a little, uh, just a couple of facts. The, if you looked at the most important issues, mm -hmm. in May, uh, right after the abortion, abortion moved up that first week. It moved up to about 8%. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, while we're much longer, May 7th to today, the most recent poll, it, it's at uh, it's at seven percent now. It's it's dropped. In other words, it went up a little bit, but it stays the same. And on the economy, uh, Biden's job approval in May was uh, forty one and disapproval fifty. It's thirty six fifty five now. And on the economy, it used to be forty one approved, forty eight disapproved, and now it's thirty six fifty four. Those those uh, and I think there are more people worried about that and the most important job and if you ask people what's the most important issue it's the economy it's inflation it's not abortions moved up but it has not uh, it, it's secondary to the economy yeah um the economy is traditionally the most important issue um and um issues that arise like uh, abortion and gun control uh, gun control is kind of classic um you know, there was a big bounce up in its importance um, at the time of the Uvalde uh, shootings, and it seems to have subsided a bit. And the, um, I think the importance of abortion as an issue will probably decrease a bit, but it is an issue in which people have firm opinions and uh, a group at least quite um, uh, motivated by it. Um, so, um, you know, I think it'll probably decrease. Um, the economy, though, I think is more interesting as an issue than we normally talk about it. Um, so uh, at the moment, uh, inflation has, is the highest it's been in uh, roughly 40 years. Um, and that's attracted a lot of attention. I hear people say that in, in pe everyone hates inflation. Well, uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, while they're aren't really any proponents of inflation. Um, the negative views on inflation are uh, concentrated on the Republican side. Uh, so if, if you ask Republicans what's the most important issue, about 40% of them at the moment will say inflation. Uh, if you ask Democrats what's the most important issue, only about 10% will say inflation. Uh, they will mention other job-related uh, issues like uh, the economy generally and jobs, right? Uh, but uh, inflation itself is more a Republican issue than a Democratic issue. Um, and uh, you know, the the fact of the situation is that the Biden administration, uh, you know, best messaging strategy is to say that we're uh, trying to fix the economy, and that means uh, jobs and inflation, um, and uh, we don't want a recession. Uh, uh, and, you know, there are plenty of people on the right essentially arguing we need a recession to wring inflation out of the economy. Uh, that may or may not be true, but it certainly isn't uh, a popular approach. That's a good point. Uh, so I've been looking around the country at various races to where um, this issue is going to impact. Uh, here in California, it's interesting. Uh, the legislature the other day passed a constitutional amendment that goes on the November ballot. It's going to be Proposition 1. So it's the first thing facing voters as they look at initiatives. And that would put abortion language into the Constitution, though California already has an abortion law signed by Ronald Reagan, of all people. Uh, our colleague, Lan He Chen, who is uh, the Republican uh, candidate for our state insurance commission, 
commissioner. He has a problem now because his opponent, uh, her name is Malia Cohen. She's a member of the State Board of Equalization. She was talking about reproductive rights uh, before the primary vote. Uh, she will further talk about it now. So he's going to have to figure out how to thread a needle uh, running as a Republican in the state where he sorely needs both Democratic crossover votes and independent votes. And so I'll be curious to see what his stance is on this. But I was looking at Florida, of all states, guys, uh, and not the November governor's race, because that's Ron DeSantis probably getting a second term. Uh, this is the Democratic primary, which is in August. And here you have a competition between uh, Nikki Freed, who is a state ag commissioner, and Charlie Crist, who is a uh, congressman, a former uh, governor of Florida. He was a Republican at the time. And uh, Freed is now going after Crist on the topic of abortion post-Dobbs. Uh, Crist, when he was the governor of Florida, called himself pro-life. He appointed conservatives to the state Supreme Court while he was governor. Uh, there uh, is a case right now in Florida having to do with the 15-week ban or not. So she is going to try to make abortion litmus test. Do you think in what remaining primaries we have, we're going to see this, uh, especially on the Democratic side? Well, it's you risk your political future by running as a pro-life Democrat. Um, yeah, there was a, a congressional race in Texas where uh, candidates survived, but just barely. Um, and on the Republican side, it's very tough to win a primary um, if you're not pro-life. Um, you know, California is is different because. Uh, we have the top two primary, uh, so you're not as dependent on uh, base votes. Um, but, you know, abortion is an issue where uh, the bases of both parties are far away from the median. Um, you know, the median is uh, pro-choice, but uh, not pro-choice under any conditions. Hmm. All right, Dave? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't disagree. I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. Uh, I, I, again, though, in terms of the election, so I, I did find some. There's, uh, if you look at uh, people who disapprove of uh, the Dobbs decision, mm -hmm. uh, there's a gender gap in the uh, Republican Party. There are more Republican women who are opposed to the Dobbs decision than men by by quite a little bit. But when you look at how are they going to vote, look at the generic vote uh, starting in May, right after the row was uh, the row potential row decision was released to the president. I, I'm just not seeing any. I'm still not getting I don't get any change in hmm. terms of these Republican women looking like they're going. Now, it could change. It, it could change as as things develop and as we see states, which states how far each state goes in terms of banning abortion and that becomes clear, it could happen. But at this point, I am, I'm just not seeing abortion or guns uh, or even the Trump factor, the January 6th hearing. I let's, don't see it changing votes much. Let's get to Trump in a minute here, but I want to put this in the 2024 terms. There was a piece in the Washington Post the other day that Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin was in New York City meeting with quote unquote big GOP donors. And I suspect that's not a reflection of their weight, but a reflection of their wallets. So <laughs> Uh, if he's not running for president, uh, it's kind of a curious use of his time. Uh, apparently, uh, the talk he gave, he stopped using uh, the word Virginia and started using the word America. Make of that what you will. Uh, what's interesting about Yunkin is this, besides obviously being a very hot political commodity, he, of course, won last November's governor's race in Virginia. Um, he has a stance on abortion, which is the following. He's trying to thread the needle. He uh, His proposal, uh, which is being uh, debated in Virginia, uh, Virginia 
would ban abortions in the state after 15 weeks. Uh, you can still get the procedure during the first term uh, with exceptions for rape, incest, and cases where the mother's life is endangered. Youngkin's also indicated that he'd be willing to compromise on a 20-week ban. Doug, do you think there is room in the Republican side of things to try to offer, well, if you want to call that middle ground, if you will, in other words, not, a, not an absolute position, not an absolute ban or absolute rights? Uh, it's a difficult needle uh, to thread. Um, it is, you know, the uh, really the only thing that a Republican that wants to win a general election uh, should want to do. But um, the majority position among Republicans is uh, is opposed to a uh, fifteen week uh, uh, allowing abortion in the first fifteen weeks. Right. Um, so I. I this is a case where Republicans are going to have the problem that their base is quite uh, extreme on the issue, and they're going to push the candidates to uh, do things that are going to be unpopular. Um, I, I don't think it's a huge issue in the sense of, um, you know, there. it's not like there's, uh, you know, 70% of the population that um, feel strongly about the issue and uh, will vote on it. Um, but it's going to cost Republicans a few points. Okay. Let's talk now about Trump in the January 6th hearings. Dave, uh, New Hampshire, Granite State poll came out uh, a few days ago. Uh, they surveyed 300 likely Republican primary voters in 2024. 37% of them, Dave, said they want Trump to be the GOP's 2024 nominee. 39% said they would support Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. This is a 5.5% margin of error, but there you have it, 37-39. Uh, the same Granite State poll, Dave, back in October, had the numbers Trump 43, DeSantis 18. So we have movement. By the way, for those curious, Trump got 35.3% of the New Hampshire primary vote in 2016. So there's kind of a level there for Trump. Uh, Dave, your thoughts on this erosion uh, in New Hampshire for Trump from 43% down for 37 and DeSantis spiking from 18 up to 39? Well, I, I think what's happened is that uh, given that Trump still has uh, at least 30%, 30, 35% of the Republican Mm -hmm. part people identify with the party as as base some some number in there right I, I think that makes it hard for uh, republicans to in fact uh, deal with the president so what's happened i think is rather than say let's forget it and get rid of him rather than doing the liz cheney thing i think what they're saying is mm -hmm. it's time to move on you saw peggy noonan had a column like that so i think right. the the process is, or, and there was another one on the Wall Street Journal that said what he needs is a surrogate, that he could be the brains behind it. So I think Republicans are trying to figure a way how to deal with the base and the strong support that he still has with these revelations and to, and to sort of move on to other candidates. And I think DeSantis is at this point the number one beneficiary of, uh, of, uh, of that. And we have um, in a project we're doing here that Bill knows better than I do at this point, we have talked to Republican operatives. And I think that what I what I just said is consistent with what they've been saying. Bill, why don't you pipe in on that? 
Well, they um, now granted these uh, these are interviews done a little while ago and things keep changing in this rather fluid election cycle where the economy dominated then Ukraine came in and now uh, gun control came in and now abortions come in and new, who knows what else in 30 days. But the findings are pretty consistent that Trump has a hold on the primary vote and that the race goes through him if he runs or not. And those who are close to Trump just don't want to go away. So the question is, can there A, be an alternative, but also B, can Republicans limit the alternative? You go back to the 2016 uh, New Hampshire primary, Trump won with 35%. Uh, John Kasich was second with 15.8%. You added up in about, there was a 49% anti-Trump vote. So if there was one anti-Trump person on the ballot, perhaps he or she wins in a straight referendum, but the, the non-Trump side of the party has not been able to mobilize in that regard. Uh, question for you, Doug. Uh, I assume you've been watching the hearings or following them closely. The testimony this week of Cassidy Hutchinson, which was quite vivid in terms of an depiction of a president just emotionally out of control, throwing a plate in the White House and maybe, maybe not making a move in his uh, limousine trying to steer the wheel <laughs> to go to the rally or not. As a pollster, how would you put that in the field? How would you want to question that? <laughs> <laughs> Putting me on the spot, Bill. Well, no, I'm, that's a I've got to come up with something for this weekend. He's got to have yeah. a video. He's going to have a video and I'm going to play Trump and I'm going to grab the wheel of his car. I guess I mean, yeah. it's a very, I mean, the question is, this, I mean, do you want, would you just yeah. ask a straightforward question on, does do the revelations, the allegations about the president's behavior, do they change your opinion on him as a candidate yeah. or, or in other words, how would you try to capture this hearing? Because you, yeah, so you I don't the, think you, that kind of question really works. Uh, the okay. people who are um, really anti-Trump will tell you that it changed their opinions about him, and right. people who are really pro-Trump won't. Um, one question that people are using that seems to give you a handle on this is asking, do you want Trump to run in 2024? Yeah. Um, so the Republicans are not anti-Trump. Uh, you know, it's uh, 80 plus percent of Republicans are uh, pro-Trump, much higher than it was in the 2016 primaries. Um, but uh, the question is, to what extent are they post-Trump? And DeSantis uh, looks to a lot of uh, certainly uh, Republican operatives as uh, uh, Trump light, uh, that is the benefits of Trump, a, a guy who's very Trumpy in his views and approach and so forth, uh, and not a lot of the baggage. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Dave, do you agree with that? I, well, I do. And I, but I also think that the thing that uh, some Republican pollsters and operatives uh, are worried about, and they should be worried about it, is that uh, Trump is a huge divider. He's a turnout machine. I agree for both parties. But there are these January 6 hearings have increased the number of independents who say they don't want him to run again. And it has increased also the number of independents who say that Trump is at least partially responsible for what happened January 6. And Democrats, uh, it's even stronger among Democrats. So now you've got Democrats and independents. And the Republican Party uh, cannot win an election without carrying independence. So, so I think uh, that that is a dilemma for the Republican Party, and they're trying to thread it pretty much the way you and uh, Bill, the way you and Doug just described it. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to get yeah, you. So the January six hearings um, have gone, I think, better than anticipated. Yep. Um, that they've had a bigger impact. They've been, uh, you know, well managed. Um, by uh, uh, the Democrats and Liz Cheney. Mm -hmm. um, typically, you know, what's been happening in um, the midterm congressional elections is 
um, Republicans have been winning uh, independence by almost two to one. Right. And what we've seen on the January 6 hearings is uh, they're not changing the views of the Democrats and Republicans on this. That the, uh, the base of both parties uh, is staying put. Um, but it does seem to uh, have some impact on uh, independent voters, swing voters, um, to the effect of that it's hurt Trump. Now, what, whether it helps the Democrats is much less clear. Um, one Republican who was speaking to me said, uh, I think this is great for Republicans. It gets Trump out of the way and allows the Republicans to nominate somebody who can win uh, easily. Um, not sure that's true either, but uh, it's certainly one perspective on this. It is thought to you guys. Have you guys given any thought to the idea of this leading ultimately to a so-called Kavanaugh effect? This was a phrase that came up in uh, 2018. If you look at the results from that election, um, the Republicans uh, had a bad night in terms of losing the House, but it was not as bad as it could have been. And they actually uh, managed to uh, hold on to the Senate um, and took out Democratic incumbents in Indiana, Missouri, and North Dakota. One theory of this happened was because woke up after the Kavanaugh hearings for Republicans, judicial nominations were a big deal and they thought Democrats overplayed it. And there was a backlash. My thinking is this, what if the January 6th committee recommends that Trump should be prosecuted and the Justice Department goes along with it and they start going after him legally? Do you think that could create a Kavanaugh effect or is Trump just too complicated to process for Republicans? Well, the Kavanaugh hearings um, did uh, generate enthusiasm uh, and turnout on the Republican side in an unusually high turnout midterm election that was looking pretty bleak for Republicans. Um, the down ballot, uh, that is um, congressional and uh, Senate races where Republicans have been overperforming for years um, is a bit of a puzzle what the cause of that is. Mm -hmm. um, Indictment of Trump, um, you know, it's still the majority view is, um, you know, what happened in 2020 is um, not the most important thing at the moment. Uh, you know, despite the hearings going well and people paying attention and uh, I think them being handled pretty uh, uh well, the, the absence of having Republicans on the committee has meant that it, ha it hasn't turned into a bunch of partisan bickering. Right. Well, um, they do have they do have they do have two Republicans on the committee. They're uh, not approved by. But one, right. one thing, by the way, that is proof that these hearings are having some effect is the stories last week about Trump was furious with McCarthy. We're not putting people on it. Which, which was the reverse. <laughs> I think was Trump was behind that was the report I got. What? The reporting I read said that uh, Trump uh, actually didn't want Republicans on the committee and um, has he changed. He didn't, his but mind. now he does. That That's yeah. the point. He's now, at the time he did it, he didn't want him on, but now he's changed his mind. And I think he's changed his mind because he sees these uh, hearings as having some sort of an effect. And the stories where he was quite nervous about the most recent witness. Mm -hmm. And uh, if 70% of what she says is true, he should be. Good point. 
Uh, guys, I'd like to turn your attention to a Quinnipiac poll out of Georgia from earlier this week. It polled both the governor's race and the uh, Senate race, and here's what they found. On the gubernatorial side, the Republican incumbent Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams are deadlocked at 48%. A Quinnipiac January poll had it at Kemp 49-47, so he went down a point, she went up a point. The Senate race back in January, Herschel Walker, the Republican challenger, led Raphael Warnick, the Democratic incumbent, 49-48. to 48. <clears throat> poll that came out this week has Warnick up 54 to 44, so a 10-point lead, a swing there. Uh, Kemp has three points up on Walker in this poll. In other words, he pulls stronger than Walker does. Doug, your thoughts on what this says about Georgia and perhaps what this may be in terms of the, the race? Because you look at these numbers, you say, okay, it's deadlocked in 48-48. Now we're to this question about whether or not there is a generic Republican wave across the country that might boost a Republican by three, four, five points. Well, I suspect that poll is too democratic um, okay. that uh, most of the polling shows uh, camp with something more like a uh, five plus point uh, edge over Stacey Abrams. Uh, the Warnock uh, Walker race um, is thought to be close and Walker isn't exactly the ideal candidate. Um, yeah, two things about that poll. First of all, it was uh, done from June 23rd, 27th. So it was in the field when the Dobbs decision came down. But secondly, the wild card here, Walker uh, had just announced that he had fathered a kid out of wedlock. So who knows what impact that had? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, what we're expecting, <laughs> you know, based on what's happened so far this year is roughly about a five point shift uh, to the Republicans. And in a state like Georgia, which was... You know, in both the 2020 presidential election and in the um, runoff in January 2021, basically an even state. Demo uh, Democrats eked out victories in all three of those, but they're very close. Um, and if you get a, a swing, um, you know, five points in the Republican direction, uh, that means even a weak candidate like Walker would be competitive. Um, Kemp himself is a bit of a stronger candidate because he, uh, you know, has managed to stand up to Trump successfully right. and isn't tarred with that. Um, and Georgia is one of these states where uh, the, the swing voters are uh, suburban whites that are uh, moderate, at least. Yeah. Uh, this landscape keeps changing, by the way. I uh, I follow Larry Sabato's crystal ball. Larry Sabato is the UVA political scientist. Uh, right after Tuesday's results, he came up with a new forecast. He shifted Illinois' governor's race from lean Democrat to safe Democrat. That's because Pritzker, the J.B. Pritzker, the Democratic incumbent, just got an ultra MAGA opponent. So that's safe, safe, safe. On the other hand, he shifted seats in Rhode Island and Colorado, uh, saying that they were they are now in play. Uh, Colorado could be competitive, but Rhode Island is a pretty deep blue state. So yeah. this just looks like a very complicated map to read. Yeah, I think I think he's overreacting. Yeah. Okay. I also I also think that you gotta make a clear distinction between House elections and Senate elections. Mm. In House elections, you find only 40, 50% know who the names of the candidate are. Incumbents generally win, they have an advantage. But but the fact is, uh, a five percent swing in the House. I don't think anybody doubts that the House is going to go Republican. You know how many seats that's going to happen. That that still may be up for grabs a little. But in the Senate, as as we know, in two thousand and ten, when the Republicans slaughtered the Democrats in the House of Representatives, 
they managed to, by nominating candidates that were idiots, the witch in Delaware, the whack job in Missouri, uh, they managed to nominate candidates that lost the Senate race. And the Senate this time is uh, going to be somewhat competitive on that grounds. Uh, Dr. Oz, uh, hope you like him, but he's not the best candidate you could have in Pennsylvania. Democrats, by the way, in my view, didn't nominate their best candidate either. But Georgia, Herschel Walker is not a good candidate. Johnson is in trouble. So in the Senate, I'd be I'm pretty willing to go on on record as saying the House will change from a Democrat to Republican. But on the Senate side, I'm not willing to say that yet because Senate Senate seats, the people actually know who the candidates are and candidates make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. All right. So Dave has given us Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, I would add Nevada and Arizona to the Senate. Yeah, those, those go the other those go the other way. They uh, Democrats would have to hold those. And those are uh, the two you just mentioned are states that could go Republican. Mm-hmm. There's very little room for error on the Democratic side. Um, yeah. So uh, the Democrats, the only two plausible pickups uh, are um, in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Right. Uh, I think both of those will be close races, but I think there's a good chance uh, the Democrats could lose uh, both of those. Um, and then there are quite a few Democratic incumbents um, who are at risk and sometimes at pretty serious risk. So I, I put uh, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, uh, New Hampshire, uh, less clear on uh, Colorado. And yeah, uh, I guess Rhode I, Island, I don't really think is in play. I would disagree. I, the only one I disagree is I don't, I'm not sure that New Hampshire in the end will be that competitive, but at this point it is. Right. But now we're back to the question of how what the plus advantage is for Republicans. If it's a plus three, a plus five, or if it spikes to something higher like plus seven, then who knows, you know, what rises. Yeah, house races. Plus seven would take uh, quite a wave. Yes. But mm-hmm. the house, house elections, the so... House elections, the swing tends to be more uniform. It doesn't vary so much by candidates. There's less variance around the swing. And in the Senate, there's a lot more variance around the swing because of candidates. Okay, guys, there have been 40 midterm elections held since the Civil War, and the president's party has lost House seats in 37 of them. Can you guys name the three in which this was not the rule? Uh, Kennedy... Kennedy, Dave, Brady was, Dave Brady was not around for one of them. That's your first clue. Yeah, Kennedy in 62, Roosevelt in 34. And, uh, Roosevelt in 34 is right. Right. Charles Kennedy but, in 62. 1998 and 2000. And, uh, You're looking it up. <laughs> well, it doesn't count. Kennedy, <laughs> Kennedy only lost. That's right there. Kennedy lost right. three seats but the, in yeah. the House, I think. Right. Was a, yeah. so right. was, what are the other two? 98? 1934. You're right, Dave. You were not around for that one, I think. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I think I was. No, I wasn't. Right. 98 and 02, I believe. Right. So 1934, you have a very popular president badly in the Great Depression. Yeah. Democrats pick up nine seats in the House. They pick up nine Senate seats. They go from 60 to 69 in the Senate that was not even 100 seats back then. In 1998, Clinton impeachment overshadows the election. Democrats pick up five House seats. There is no shift in the Senate. Yeah. 2002, George W. Bush is popular. 9-11 overshadows the election. Republicans pick up eight House seats, two in the Senate. Yeah. Here's, here's what we know about this 
election, Joe Biden is not Franklin Roosevelt. And one of the reasons he's in trouble is because his aides tried to convince him he should be Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, as for an impeachment backlash, I think that might be a conversation for 2024 if House Republicans come in and some for some reason decide they should impeach Joe Biden. Um, but we do have the Supreme Court uh, maybe overplaying its hand here, and we have other rulings uh, impacting 9-11. You look at those past historical um, indicators, though, is there anything about the 2022 landscape that suggests that it's in any way similar to 1934, 1998, or 2002? No. No. Quick no, answer, no. <laughs> no, I don't see anything. Well, yeah, they, they, they both have numbers around them. It's 2022, and yeah. well, it was 1998. So right. the dates have four numbers. That's the only so, thing in common. Um, unfortunately, Dave is right, but uh, <laughs> I would say a uh, couple things are different. Uh, the first is uh, Democrats lost seats uh, in the House in uh, 2020 and winning the election. Um, right. So uh, in terms of grading against the curve, it's not a very uh, tough comparable they're going against. So, right. um, you know, unlike 1932, where uh, Democrats gained a ton of seats and they gained even more in 1934, mm -hmm. um, uh, this is an easy comparable. But the um, same thing happened to Clinton in, to, in the Clinton mm -hmm. In 1992, when he won, they lost. They had lost some seats, and then they really lost them in '94. So the swing is against the preceding presidential election, and uh, when there's a big win in the preceding election, then you tend to get a big reversal the other direction. Uh, this um, and that Dave's written some papers on this. Uh, um, the other thing I think we should think about is um, that. Uh, we're in a different world than we were uh, even uh, 10, 15 years ago. Um, you know, in 2010, the Democrats lost 70 seats, uh, albeit on a big gain in the preceding election. Hmm. Uh, the polarization between the parties and the rate at which people are switching um, suggests to me that you're going to get smaller swings for the same size effects. Right. Having said all that, the landscape is just bleak for Democrats um, that, uh, you know, the swings that you've seen in every election so far are pretty large. And if there were a national swing in, in the vote where Republicans were plus five in the House votes, yeah. you would normally expect them to pick up, you know, 50, 60 or more seats. Um, and I think what you're likely to see is about a 30 seat gain, uh, so much smaller than usual. Oh. I think a 30-seat 30, uh, 30 game would take us just about to where we were back in after 2010. Yes. By, by the way, one, one thing that's amazing about this, uh, I was talking with Doug earlier before we came on, and uh, he had an amazing finding, which was, if you looked at strong Democrats, mm -hmm. uh, there was a question about what, is, what do you think will, what, what's your, what do you think is going to happen in the 2022 House and Senate elections? And Doug, tell them what it showed. And then I did it by ideology, so I can add a little bit. But this is really interesting, I thought. Sixty percent of strong Democrats think Democrats are going to hold the House. Um, yeah, if Democrats want to uh, improve their situation, they need to alarm their base about uh, the shellacking that they're going to get. That's so I, when I added, so I added, uh, when I looked at strong Democrat and I put strong Democrat and liberal, they're highly correlated. It goes up a little bit. I mean, 
it, it is uh, it is uh, it is amazing. Ro Khanna, uh, who was the, who's the Democratic congressman from San Jose, mm-hmm. uh, he was talking with David Kennedy, and David Kennedy uh, had noted to him that Doug Rivers and I had been talking about a thirty seat loss, and and he was he, he just told David Kennedy the historian here he said, oh that can't be, can't be. <laughs> I, I just I find that just I, I don't know what tea leaves they're looking at, but they're not the ones I'm looking at. I hope Professor Kennedy better lunch on it to at least recoup that. This does lead to the question, though, about Joe Biden and his relationship within his party in this regard. Now, on the one hand, you could say at a midterm election, even if a Democrat, if he become a president, is very popular in his own party. Ronald Reagan lost seats in 1982. Barack Obama got punished in 2010. Uh, you can say a more popular Joe Biden could perhaps stem the bleeding here. But Joe Biden's relationship with his own party is kind of a curious one. There's the question about whether or not he's going to run for a second term, which is now some Democrats are speculating. Uh, the media is having a lot of great time with. Kamala Harris got into trouble over this yesterday, I think saying he intends to run, which is one of those great parsing of words that she had to take back uh, here in California. You have Gavin Newsom now stepping up and thinking that he is the voice of the National Party and so doing things like going on to Trump's uh, Truth Social website to kind of speak truth, which I find to be kind of a waste of time, frankly, because you're just yelling at people who don't want to listen to you in the first place. Um, There is a question, though, of how the Democrats can regain enthusiasm. And in theory, it's the president going out and barnstorming. But, Doug, you look at Joe Biden's poll numbers and why is he struggling in the polls? Is it is it the economy, strictly the economy itself, or is it just Biden, the way he conducts the presidency? In other words, it's not it's not a youthful, vigorous presidency. So, yeah, it's just countercurrent to what Democrats want. Be careful. (laughs) Um, I hear he's old. Um, No, I mean, Biden was never uh, a a great communicator, uh, and he's lost a step or two in that. Uh, um, And then accompanied with, you know, economic problems, uh, Afghanistan, you know, missteps on the budget. Um, it's not a uh, flawless political performance. Um, yeah, I, I, my, yeah, my view of that is pretty, pretty straightforward. I agree with what Doug said. But the fact is, Joe Biden got elected for one reason. He's not Donald Trump. He wasn't Donald Trump. Right. Yep. And, ever, and more people thought he was a moderate. And then, in my view, he got caught up with the left wing of his party. And I don't know whether it had to do with a competition with Obama, but whatever it is, he pushed... The notion that he could be, along with Bernie Sanders and others, were pushing the notion he could be Franklin Roosevelt. And you can't do it with a 50-50 Senate. And so everything Doug said, I think, is compounded by the fact that they misinterpreted the election results. Or chose to ignore them, one of the two. I think the election there is you invite historians into the Oval Office in your second term and you're starting to think about your legacy as opposed to the beginning yeah. of your first term where they can kind of pollute you with their own ideas. <laughs> <Yeah. doing. laughs> but, Doug, but Doug, this does get back to the idea of what rallying effect there is for Democrats, how they would rally in this election, because again, getting back to Obama, he went out and campaigned like crazy in 2010 for House Democrats. They right. skunked. He went out in 2014 and for, for Senate Democratic candidates and said, let's hold on to the Senate. He got you know slapped down in that one too. So so maybe the idea of the president's the rallying force is overrated, but perhaps the idea of the president is an albatross of the party is not. But again, uh, we've talked about abortion. We've talked about other conditions. What exactly is the democratic message here? How do you get people to turn out? Well, I think they're going to have a hard time. They, yeah. they don't have, 
the issues that uh, the issues that looked like it would do it was January 6th, that, that looks bad for uh, Republicans. Uh, gun control, that looked, that looked bad also, and so did abortion. And none of that appears to be moving anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a model of how you can do it, and they still lost, uh, suffered losses in the midterm was Ronald Reagan in 1982. Um, which uh, was uh, stay the course. Uh, this is what you elected me to do, and I'm doing it. Yep. Um, and you know, it, they ran. Eighty two was at the um, still a recession uh, hadn't turned around at that point, and they managed to hold on to a bit. Um, you know, so if I were Biden, uh, I would argue on I've restored. Uh, normalcy to the White House. Um, I've uh, achieved uh, bipartisan things like uh, the infrastructure bill, which uh, uh, didn't happen for four years under Trump. Um, uh, we got a uh, gun control bill that uh, was bipartisan. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm delivering you the best employment numbers uh, um, from the worst uh, when I took over. Um, but you know, that message is not being delivered. The one that's being delivered is uh, Biden's a failure. Um, the economy is in the tank and uh, uh, things are out of control. Yeah, Dave, yeah, for reasons I, I, I think that is the right message. But the question is, can Biden deliver it? And if you remember, let's go back to the 2020 campaign. Uh, he was not uh, he was not out campaigning a tremendous amount. Yeah. So I, I just think he's that was helpful to him, I think. Based yeah, I, I do, too. And the point is, you, you can't do that in the midterm. You got to go out and deliver the message that Doug start, that Doug just put out. Well, you know, it's funny when they uh, did the infrastructure bill, uh, they did not do much in the way of a victory lap for it. For some reason, yeah. the president just kind of walked away from it. And here's where a little bad luck comes in, if you will. Uh, the president signs a gun control bill and say what you will about the contents of the bill. It's progress. It's breaking a logjam that existed on, on, you know, in Washington should have been a moment to take a victory lap, but guess what? The day he signs, it's the same day that the Dobbs decision comes down. So that signing didn't get much traction, did it? Uh, didn't get a lot of news that day, but yeah. you know, the, what happened on the infrastructure bill is I think uh, emblematic of the problem. Um, he uh, allowed the, uh, Democrats in Congress and uh, Pelosi, who's usually a pretty uh, good tactician, um, to uh, try to push through the bigger bill they wanted by holding the infrastructure bill hostage for um, three months. Um, and the result of that was a blunder because uh, they never got to take credit for the infrastructure bill and they got blamed for a bill that uh, people knew the price tag of, but never actually knew what was in it, since no one knew what was actually in it, uh, since they never got an agreement. Um, and, as uh, we I say, think that hurt them as much as anything. Yeah. As we say in the MBA, as we say in the MBA classroom, building on that, uh, Doug, Doug's point is, I, I think, is emblematic of the, or re is the representative of the problem the Democrats have. About 60% of the Democratic Party is uh, progressive and liberal, and about 40% is moderate and conservative. And the fact is that when the infrastructure bill passed, instead of taking advantage of that, the left pushes them to say, okay, let's get the bill back better. And when you don't get that, uh, there's a problem. When you go out, if Biden goes out and tries to take credit for those things, 
AOC and others jump on them and say, you're not going far enough. So that problem of the left and the moderates in the Democratic Party, and, and by the way, just in the most recent uh, YouGov Economist poll, when you ask uh, Democrats, you say, uh, what's your preferred House outcome? 69% of moderates, uh, only 69% of moderates say they prefer a Democratic House. Right. 14, 15% say they want a Republican House. And that's where they lose votes. And when they don't carry the moderate slash conservative part of their party, they lose elections. And it looks to me like in 2022 in the House, that's not happening. Right. So they're they not getting those votes. So they like divided government, but they don't like gridlock. Yeah, it looks more like 2014 for the Democrats. What am I supposed to predict? <laughs> <laughs> no, I tell you, well, let's just say let's, I'm right. That's all you have to do. Just say I'm right. <laughs> just say Dave is right, so Dave can put it into his ringtone every time you call him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. So last question here. So here we are, 130 days out, and uh, no, we're not going to predict here. But let's talk just about what to look for in the next 130 days. I, I think they're probably going to tell me come back at Labor Day and we'll have this conversation. But this gets to the idea of just how baked things are right now. Um, are things kind of getting gelled toward November? Or we are, in the, again, in this rather fluid election year, we've had three, four big topics just kind of pop up and then recede. Well, I what I'm looking for is in the primaries, mm -hmm. uh, the president's had kind of a mixed record right. on, uh, on, on, on who wins. I mean, you know, the other, some people say, oh, he's at 90 some percent. Yeah, but he chose mostly incumbents and uh, that, that wasn't hard. So I'm looking for to see what happens to the candidates. I do think, uh, I do think the candidates who won nomination and the main, main reason they won it is because they said the election, 2020 election was uh, fake. I don't think that's going to be, I want to know how many of those people there are and where are they? Because I don't think they're going to be very successful in the actual 2022 election results. They're giving their opponents a big handle. Right. So that's one thing I'm looking for. And two, looking to see if any of these issues like abortion of the January 6th hearings uh, tick up people's possible voting or uh, whether we're getting switches in Republican women and suburban women saying they're going to vote uh, Democratic in House and Senate elections. Maybe maybe one more to throw in here, guys, and that's immigration. The court today um, uh, uh, overturning, uh, get, siding with the Biden administration and allowing it to overturn the uh, stay in Mexico policy, the Trump administration admitted. So if you have that and some sort of crisis, the borders, some migrant wave, maybe immigration soars up the chart again. Well, immigration is not a great issue for Democrats. Right. Um, it loses uh, some of the swing voters they need. I mean, I think the situation is pretty baked. Um, uh, the economy in the third quarter is going to be pretty much the same as it is now. Um, inflation is not going to go away between now and November. Uh, there's not going to be... Um, a bigger spurt of economic growth. So what you see is what you got on the economy. So the Democrats need the, an inside straight here. Uh, abortion, I think, gives them something to work with. Uh, I think gun control has some possibilities of uh, winning over uh, swing voters um, in the January 6th hearing, uh, if they could get uh, uh, lucky on that um, so that Trump becomes an issue again. Um, you know, Trump helps Democrats. And uh, so, uh, you know, I suppose there's an outside chance he can uh, come to the rescue. But overall, um, I think 
it's going to look pretty much the same on Labor Day. I'll be happy to come back and tell you. Um, you can run us and repeats at that point, Bill. Exactly. Dave, I see two conversations in December of this election. Democrats debating what went wrong and having a very vivid internal debate over, over what was wrong. Uh, but secondly, Republicans having to decide what to do with newfound power. And they can either try to do something productive and talk about what the party stands for, or they can go in a kind of complete circus mode and try to impeach the president and try to pers- prosecute Hunter Biden and so forth. Circus time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're voting for the circus. Okay. So I've got Doug on a record saying you're going to come back after Labor Day and tell me all kinds of things about the election. Agreed? I'll be happy to repeat myself. Sounds good. <laughs> or not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. David, Doug, as always, thanks for the conversation. Uh, what do you guys got planned for the rest of the summer? Are you going anywhere? Doug, you going back up to Dave, you going back up to Montana? Well, I went to Montana and it rained every day and I couldn't fish, so I came back. So I hope to, as soon as the rivers are, uh, I hope to go back up, yeah. Doug, do you ever take time off or is it just one pole after another? No. I'm I'm taking a sightseeing trip to London next week. For Uh business. For business. (laughs) (laughs) Europe is seen from the inside of a hotel room. (laughs) Okay, guys, we enjoyed the uh, conversation as always. Thanks for your insight and thanks for your great polling data. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Dave Brady is not on social media, but Doug Rivers is. His handle is at Doug underscore Rivers. Doug and Rivers spelled as you might expect. And I mentioned his excellent polling firm, YouGov. Also on Twitter, the handle is at YouGov, spelled Y-O-U-G-O-V. I also mentioned our website beginning the podcast, which is Hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Dave Brady and Doug Rivers and their Hoover colleagues your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.